Welcome to the Weekend Universities podcast. Before we get into today's show, I just want to take a quick second and let you know about our mission and our early access list. Our aim as an organization is to make the best ideas from psychology and psychotherapy more accessible so you can use the knowledge to improve your own quality of life and the lives of others. To do this, we organize monthly conferences featuring presentations from world-leading psychologists, professors, and authors. If you'd be interested in being the first to access our latest talks and getting huge discounts on our live psychology conferences, meaning you could stay at the forefront of the field at the lowest possible prices, you can sign up for the early access list at www.theweekenduniversity.com. Okay, so everybody, welcome to our first session today. Um, the event theme is A Day on Consciousness. I'm here with the first speaker, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. Dr. Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist and writer who is committed to the idea that the mind and brain can be understood only by seeing them in the broadest possible context. He was formerly a consultant psychiatrist of the Bethlehem, Royal and Maudsley NHS Trust in London, where he was clinical director of their Southern Sector Acute Mental Health Services. Dr. McGillicus has published original research and contributed chapters to books on a wide range of subjects, as well as original articles in papers and journals, including the British Journal of Psychiatry, the American Journal of Psychiatry, the Wall Street Journal, the Sunday Telegraph, and the Sunday Times. His books include Against Criticism, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Search for Meaning, and Ways of Attending. His latest book, The Matter with Things, which he will give a talk on today, addresses some of the oldest and hardest questions humanity faces, including who are we? What is the world? How can we understand consciousness? Is the cosmos without purpose or value? And can we really neglect the sacred and divine? You can keep up to date with, keep up to date with his work at ch- channelmcgillchrist.com and follow him on Twitter at Dr. Underscore McGillchrist. This is Dr. McGillchrist's third engagement with the Weekend University, and I'm sure you'll agree it's a it's a real honor to have him back with us for this event. So, Dr. McGillicus, whenever you're ready, um, feel, feel free to get started and re- really looking forward to this. Thank you very much, Niall, and thank you for inviting me back. I've enjoyed my previous talks. And today I've taken a, a very large and absurdly large um, canvas. I'm going to mainly talk about values and a certain amount about purpose. In a previous talk, I think two hours, I looked at consciousness so I, I won't, I'll take that as read for today. I won't discuss its nature, except to say that in an earlier talk, I explained why I believe consciousness is first irreducible and second, best thought of as a flow or process rather than a thing. Uh, that flow, that process always being directed towards something and our experience being always an encounter. Well, what are um, values? In the third part uh, of The Matter With Things, uh, the book is divided into three parts. There are chapters on space, time, matter, consciousness, but also on values and on purpose, which might surprise people uh, who are not um, uh, used to thinking that important parts of the universe include things like values, purpose, and the sense of the sacred. Well, what are they? Are they just paint or wallpaper on the walls of our cell? 
which we put there in order to brighten uh, our prospects in this hermetically sealed box in which we leave, lead our lives? Um, or are they merely just less accurate ways of describing what we like and what we don't like? We have terms for them, good, beautiful, true, but really uh, it's just a matter of um, our opinion about what works well for us. Well, I'm going to suggest that um, that's very far from being the case and that in valuing and coming to appreciate the value of things, we are encountering intrinsic aspects of reality. So I take values to be primary. I, they're not derivable from anything else. And they're not things within consciousness, abstract things, of course, but still not things. They're rather aspects of reality. In other words, they're not nouns, but adjectives or ver adverbs that are revealed through the process, through that encounter. Now, in both the master and his emissary, and much more in the matter with things, there is an, an extensive survey of the brain literature on the differences between hemispheres. And again, I won't attempt to summarize that here, except to say that overall, the drift of the book, The Matter with Things, as the title suggests, it's a pun on several levels, that part of the problem we face is that we think there is only matter and that the world is a bunch of things. In other words, it's leading people intelligently to examine and I believe find wanting inappropriate reductionism in our attitude to ourselves and the world, a, a too narrow materialism and an obsession with mechanism. These are all aspects of the way in which the left hemisphere, which is um, preferentially serially and analytically inclined, these are all aspects of the kind of world that the left hemisphere enables us to encounter. Whereas the right hemisphere enables us to see a broader picture, a syncretic or synthetic vision of reality uh, and one that works in organically rather than uh, simply as a mechanism. So in thinking of values as non-reducible entities, uh, I'm not on my own. Um, the great early 20th century German phenomenological philosopher Max Scheler said just that. But if you are more inclined to the Anglo-American analytic tradition, one of the greatest philosophers of recent decades in that tradition, Derek Parfit, who I was honoured to have as a colleague at All Souls, also took the view that values are ontologically primitive. And they're also not sort of piggybacking on human consciousness, as though we've got consciousness, so then we get values as part of the deal. Value, writes Thomas Nagel, is not just an accidental side effect of life. Rather, there is life because life is a necessary condition of value. Now, valuing depends on a relationship. Uh, only in its being appreciated is value fulfilled as value. Neither we nor other living creatures originate values. They are evocations and we fulfill those evocations in responding to them. We are attracted to what is true, beautiful, morally good, 
at a deeper level than mere cognition can provide. What Scheler called Wertnehmung, a formation by analogy with the German word Wahrnehmung, which means perception, Wertnehmung meaning something like valueception, and he likened it to the way in which we see color. We see it immediately. We don't see it as the outcome of a computation uh, or a rationalization. It is a primary aspect of our experience. Well, what is life for? We're not funking any of the big questions in this talk, by the way. What is life for? Well, I do attempt to answer this question at enormous length in, in uh, The Matter With Things. But I suggest it's not for consciousness. As you will know from my earlier, more extensive lecture on consciousness, I believe that consciousness permeates the universe. Well, one answer could be that life brings the capacity to recognize and respond to value rather as Thomas Nagel says. It vastly enhances both the degree and the speed of responsiveness to and within the world. So inanimate elements do respond to the world in certain very simple and primitive way, ways, but they do so rather slowly. Processes may take billions of years. In a living organism, they may take less than a second and the degree of responsiveness, we can't estimate what that is, but it's very much less than the degree of responsiveness of any living being. I suggest, and I don't have time to unpack what I'm saying here, I'm just giving you something to ponder on or reject. Life could be seen as the very process of the cosmic consciousness or the conscious cosmos, continually both discovering and furthering in its unfolding its beauty, its truth and its goodness, both contemplating and not separately, but in the same indivisible act, bringing them further into being, a process, in other words. So values evoke a response in us and call us to some end. They're what give meaning to life such things as beauty, goodness, truth, and purpose, which I will talk about briefly later, but it has its own chapter in The Matter With Things. Science can tell us what their brain correlates may be, the correlates of these values, but cannot help us understand their nature. It can, though, help us misunderstand them. This is for three main reasons. It may disregard them on principle, as is the case with purpose, no assumption of purpose is made in the life sciences, and that's a perfectly valid assumption to make if you wish to, but it won't be surprised then if you find nothing purposeful after um, carrying out your investigations on that basis and on those terms. Secondly, it can attempt to account for them in terms of something else. So it can say, for example, that beauty is simply um, a tool of mate selection, or it can say that goodness uh, enables priests to have power over the people or, or something of the kind. You've heard it all, I'm sure. And thirdly, and above all, most importantly, but probably less obviously, it gets them wrong by treating them as things rather than encounters, relationships in process. I will just look, look at um, the three main values that I've mentioned before saying a little bit about purpose. But don't forget 
that science's disposition not to value is already value-laden. The belief that an inhumanly detached way of looking at our experience of the world is more valuable than one in which we encounter it and register its value expresses values of its own. And one of those, of course, is truth. Truth uh, deserves and gets a chapter of its own in my new book, but truth is, again, not a thing, whether conceived of as out there or in here, but an encounter between whatever is our inner take on our consciousness and the rest of the consciousness that it encounters in what we call experience. But let me ask a simple question. Why does science revere truth? Science will not admit anything that is not empirically verifiable, but the value of truth, like all value, is incapable of empirical proof. So where does this intuition, because that's what it is, come from? It can't be for its utility. Useful assumptions are not always truthful, such as it's quite useful sometimes to consider for certain practical purposes, an organism is like a machine, but for roughly eight important reasons, an organism is never like a machine. Equally true assumptions are not always of practical use. You can't make this equation. But my point is, in a meaningless universe without ultimate values, shouldn't we just maximize happiness? Why does a person who sees the universe as a pointless heap of material fragments care if you deceive yourself by, for example, believing in a God, which might bring comfort in adversity and encourage you towards leading what we call a godly life? Where does this idea of a transcendent truth that surpasses all other considerations, including those of the greater happiness of others, come from? It makes sense to me, but that's because I don't believe that the world is chaotic, orderless and meaningless. But if you do, what is the virtue of truth? Truth is an act. Again, it's not a thing. It's an act of trust in or faithfulness towards whatever is. It characterizes the proper relationship between consciousness and the world. It is therefore not a function of some other value. Nonetheless, it does imply that being faithful, though not blindly so, has value in and of itself. And that the something else to which we are faithful has an intrinsic value of its own perhaps goodness or beauty, or the faith would be blind. As you see, rather than closing down on a single foundational element in a causal chain, we find this process of inquiry leading in the opposite direction to a web of interconnectedness that we cannot by any means get behind or beneath in which values cohere and sustain one another. On that point, I'd just like to reflect on something that will sound very strange for those of us brought up on science in the 21st or even the 20th century, which is the relationship of love with value. It was a point made by St. Augustine, but then later by Pascal, by Nietzsche, 
by Max Scheler, by Erich Fromm, by Simone Weil. Not that we love things because we have learned to value them, but that we can value them only, or can value them correctly, only if we love them. So that there isn't a, um, a path to this. Uh, once again, there isn't a single step you take and then another, but you must enter into an open relationship in which the capacity for love is present. If you drive that out and say, I'm going to have a cold clinical detachment from everything I look at, you will see certain things, but you'll see a rather skewed picture. Now, what about goodness? Goodness, we are ticking them off, aren't we, rather? Um, goodness, interestingly, in the modern West, at least in the world of philosophy faculties, goodness has been reduced to a utilitarian calculus. To call something good is to say that it brings happiness to the larger number of people. And utilitarian philosophers are fond of uh, thought experiments uh, such as um, a doctor has um, a patient who needs transplants, several patients who need transplants uh, of different kinds, a kidney, a heart, a liver, whatever it may be. And a healthy man comes into the surgery to um, realise that if he could um, kill this patient, he'd have healthy organs that would save five people's lives. Now, the, the moral question in utilitarianism is, would he be justified in doing so? It seems in a way that he would, but I imagine most of us think this would be a disaster um, in terms of uh, our relationships with the medical profession, if not with ourselves and the world altogether. If I need to explain to you why it is not okay for a film of sadistic paedophilia to give pleasure to perhaps thousands of people across the world, if you can't see that you can't have a reckoning of that against the suffering of the child, then I really can't help you. This kind of ruthless calculating is itself immoral. And one really interesting fact for me, or range of facts for me as someone interested in neuropsychiatry, is that people with frontal brain damage, people with right hemisphere damage, and people of low emotional and social intelligence, and psychopaths, all tend to make moral decisions on the basis of a utilitarian calculus. And this leads to the rather odd situation, as one uh, research group pointed out, it leads to the counterintuitive conclusion that those individuals who are least prone to moral errors in the eyes of academic philosophers also possessed a set of psychological characteristics that many would consider prototypically immoral. I don't have time to go into my beliefs about this and alternatives such as deontology, but just to say that I think something that is known as virtue ethics, um, which is subtle, and takes into account many factors is probably going to work better. By the way, when I say uh, brain damage and so on, it can also be done with normal subjects by simply suppressing uh, certain parts of the brain. So with the right temporal, uh, temporoparietal junction suppressed by uh, transcranial 
magnetic simulation, people who uh, would normally make um, a morally sound judgment will reach a bizarre conclusion on the basis of simply calculating outcomes. Goodness is irreducible. And interestingly, it's deeply bound up with the right hemisphere. In fact, David Hecht, who's a neuroscience researcher at UCL, uh, goes so far as to state quite boldly that moral and immoral thinking are associated with activity in the right hemisphere and left hemisphere, respectively. And I wouldn't demur from that. There's also a difference between pleasure-seeking of different kinds. There's a difference between what's known as eudaimonic pleasure and hedonic pleasure. Hedonic pleasure is simply um, doing more and more of things that um, give one pleasure at the time in a rather direct way. Um, the sort of goals that we might think, you know, making making money, winning a game, um, eating a nice meal, whatever it might be. And this involves something called the hedonic treadmill. The, the more fulfillment you get on it, the more you need. And in the end, you're never satisfied um, whatever you do get. This could be contrasted with eudaimonic pleasure, which is the sort of pleasure that one has from leading what would have been called in the past and might well still be called a virtuous life in which one's own goals and the goals of others are harmonized and one gets pleasure from leading a, a good life. Um, so those two things are interesting because he, the pursuit of hedonic pleasure leads to ill health um, mentally uh, and eudaimonic pleasure leads to uh, good health mentally and also physically. People who uh, pursue only uh, their own personal pleasure uh, express um, proteins in the body in a way that those who are enduring chronic stress um, express them. And when we act intuitively, you may be surprised to learn, uh, we are most often gracious and generous. It's a further reflection that we have afterwards that makes us selfish and greedy. According to psychologists Jamil Zaki and Jason Mitchell, rather than requiring control over instinctive selfishness, pro-social behavior appears to stem from processes that are intuitive, reflexive, and even automatic. These observations suggest that our understanding of pro-sociality should be revised to include the possibility that in many cases, pro-social behavior, instead of requiring active control over our impulses, represents an impulse of its own. Incidentally, I think it's fair to say that the prevailing cast of mind in reductionist science, whether biological or psychological, is effectively cynical. It takes the view that, for instance, where there is altruism, it must be covert selfishness, that we are maximizers of our self-interest, that we are blind mechanisms. There's a lot that could be said against that, but uh, I'd rather like this comment from philosopher David Stove, who writes of the belief that no one ever acts intentionally except from motives of self-interest. There is a perennial human type to whom this belief is peculiarly and irresistibly congenial. It is almost never a woman. It's the kind of man who is deficient in generous or even disinterested impulses himself and knows it, but keeps up his self-esteem by thinking that everyone else is really in the same case. He prides himself on having the perspicacity to realize what most people disguise even from themselves, that everyone is selfish 
and on having the uncommon candour not to conceal this unpleasant truth. Another interesting finding is that cynicism appears to be associated not with higher intelligence, but relatively lower intelligence, and appears to be a coping strategy by the cognitively less gifted to avoid being duped by others. There is in fact a host of um, types of evidence from both psychological literature in humans and from uh, watching animal behavior to show that it certainly doesn't uh, doesn't limit itself what, at, at all to kin selection. Uh, animals are seen to risk their own lives in order to save creatures that um, are of a different species altogether, for example. And there are many reasons why humans choose courses of action that are not immediately um, advantageous to them, such as, for example, having children. What about beauty? Well, beauty um, is uh, often thought of as a sort of necessary cog in the machinery of evolution. Uh, it serves as a means of ensuring sexual attraction and therefore the continuation of the evolutionary process problem solved. Except that this doesn't solve the problem. In particular, it begs the very qu first question, where does beauty come from? Natural selection and sexual selection cannot be the answers. They're the answers to a quite different question, namely, given beauty, how might it be used to advantage? Having described how bright colours and other adornments in flowers and animals can be largely attributed to the agency of selection, as they clearly can, Darwin twice makes the same puzzled observation. How the sense of beauty in its simplest form, that is, the reception of a peculiar kind of pleasure from certain colours, forms and sounds, was first developed in the mind of man and of the lower animals. How this was is a very obscure subject. How the sense of beauty in its simplest form was first acquired, we do not know. And it's a very obvious point that beauty seems to be something much grander than anything to do with sexual selection, um, beauty and landscapes, which for thousands of years, not just since the Romantic era, beauty and landscapes has often been found in desert wastes, in dense forests, not just in fertile landscapes. And that's just the tiniest beginning. There's a, a beauty of a single minor third, never mind of a Schubert piano sonata, or of an elegant chess move, or of a Zen garden, or of a snow on a mountain top, or Euler's equation e to the i pi equals minus one. Anyway, beauty is there, but we don't know where it comes from. And I suggest it doesn't derive from other things. It is a primary, um, a primary element of the structure of the cosmos, and it's not a luxury or a superfluity that only comes to people who've already satisfied um, their basic needs. Neil McGregor, in his History of the uh, World in 100 Objects, uh, said something rather striking. One of the greatest discoveries for me was that actually, as soon as we start making things, we start making beautiful things. That it looks as though even one and a half million years ago, we want things to be beautiful, we want them to be complicated, and we want that just as much, apparently, as wanting them to be fit for purpose. In fact, it's, this is me now, not, not um, a McGregor, it's particularly perverse to attempt to subordinate beauty to utility, since one of the distinguishing features of beauty is that, as Kant, and not only Kant, pointed out, it pleases us disinterestedly. 
Exactly what marks it out, he says, is its purposiveness without presenting any purpose. Another interesting thing is, and I wish I had time to, to give you some visual demonstrations of this, but I don't think I do. Um, there are common elements between different cultures. Certainly some things are found beautiful in one culture that are not in another, but there's a remarkable um, shared sense of what is beautiful People in quite different cultures uh, still find the objects of another quite distinct culture, um, maybe on the other side of the world, uh, beautiful and vice versa. Um, indeed, uh, infants prefer faces judged beautiful by people within the culture of each face, if you see what I mean. They find them beautiful and are more attracted to them before they've learnt uh, to speak, never mind uh, anything else. And that can be told from their, their gaze. If they, they spend more time gazing at beautiful faces. So um, beauty has a number of qualities. It involves harmony um, and judicious violations of harmony. Appearances, therefore not of things, but the relations between things that are simultaneously similar but different. Uh, of ambiguity, unexpectedness, uh, implicitness, embodiedness, um, irreplaceability, uniqueness, uh, and it gives pleasure without concepts. These all point towards the gestalt appreciation of the right hemisphere. So um, the prevailing dominant account of a meaningless purely material cosmos supplied by the reductionist strategy of the left hemisphere fails to make sense of value whether that be truth goodness or beauty just as it fails to make sense of consciousness its answer in every case is the same that they must be emanations of a purely material cosmos that exists purely to further utility now, it seems to me that if you believe that, you'll believe anything. You might even end up believing that consciousness is an illusion. Neither this point of view nor any alternative to it can be proved. So our best recourse is to apply science, reason, intuition and imagination to experience. It seems to me that the reductionist account is contrary to scientific findings, unreasonable, counterintuitive and shows a complete refusal to exercise intelligent imagination, all the hallmarks of its birth in the left hemisphere. The result is that values themselves become devalued. Beauty, morality and truth have been downgraded, dismissed or denied. If you want to see the consequences, you need do more, no more than look around you. Now, finally, on the huge topic of purpose, I've only got a short while to talk to you about it, but it's a very interesting topic. Darwin was brought up to believe in God as a sort of benign maker and superintendent of the universe, like a genial elderly engineer who's made a phenomenally complex structure and occasionally intervenes to drop oil on the cogs. And he couldn't believe this when he looked around at the universe. So this created a conflict for him. In fact, he never resolved it. He said that on matters of the existence or otherwise of God, uh, it, this is completely beyond the human mind. You might as well ask a, a dog to um, 
uh, understand the mind of Newton. But we don't require an engineering God of any kind. Indeed, this engineering God is itself a perfect expression of the left hemisphere mentality gone on the largest possible scale. If the left hemisphere had to deify its own thinking, it would be this cosmic all controlling God. But actually, a lot of what happens, though it seems to be purposefully driven, is not reassuring at all. And I give many examples in the book, but I can't help making this rather wonderful example of a fun parasite. There are many extraordinary things that parasites do, um, such as uh, toxoplasma, toxoplasma gondii, which um, is uh, an infection in rats which needs to get into cats in order to mature. And if passed on to humans, at least according to some people, may be a causative factor in schizophrenia. One of the first things it does when it gets into rats is to make them uncharacteristically unafraid of cats. And they will even approach cats in order that this process may happen. But just listen to this one. Uh, a type of carpenter ant, Campanotus leonardii, which is extraordinarily sophisticated. It forages and communicates food sources to comrades, carves wooden galleries to live in, indulges in farming, ants corral and protect aphids in order to get a sweet substance called honeydew from them and protect aphids in order to get this from them by stroking them with their antennae. Nonetheless, these meet their nemesis in the form of a lowly fungus, the so-called zombie ant fungus, which exists in rainforests in Asia, Africa and South America. While the ant forages on the forest floor, it is infected with a spore which takes several days to develop inside the ant's body. The fungus then takes over the nervous system of the ant and makes it behave entirely against its nature. The ant climbs, always to about the same height, about 25 centimetres up a tree, to a site which, which has exactly the right amount of humidity for the fungus to grow. The fungus then makes its host do something contrary to its nature, to bite onto vegetation before killing it. The ant clamps onto the underside of a leaf with its mandibles hanging above its colony and dies. Within 24 hours, threads of fungus burst out of the corpse. Finally, a stalk thrusts up out of the ant and starts to shower spores onto the rainforest floor where they turn in turn infect more ants. Uh, so I hope you understand that I have no brief for the idea of um, all this kind of strikingly directed sounding evolution uh, being benign. So the first difference one me needs to make is between the kind of purpose which is thought of as being extrinsic and instrumental, like the engineering god, and this is like the purpose of any machine. The purpose of a photocopier lies in the copied sheet that emerges from it. Or on the contrary, um, we could think of uh, purpose as something that's intrinsic and entirely fulfilled in the process itself. For example, a dance or a poem. These things are by no means pointless, but the point lies precisely within, not like the copied sheet, without the process that brought it into being. And the second difference is that between a narrowly determined and mechanistic account of purpose on the one hand and a largely undetermined and free account on the other. This um, shows an illustration from uh, 
uh, Conrad Hull Waddington, Waddington, who was a great British um, natural scientist of the last century, it shows an image of something that he called creodes, which were preferential piles. If you imagine a landscape um, of hills and rivers and even mountainsides and water falling from the sky evenly on that landscape, even though the fall of the rain is entirely random, it will end up in various predictable places because it will be channeled by the force and energy of the shape of the landscape into going down certain rivulets and towards the sea. It, only if there's an enormous amount of energy in one of the rivulets that it may get into can it hop over the, the um, divide the raised threshold that separates it from a nearby channel. So this is really the instance if you dropped a, a marble or something along this path, it would probably go, it might go down here, it might go down there, it might go to either of those, but there are various points at the bottom where you can predict it will come out. That's one of the ways in which um, in, in itself random can end up um, being predictable and leading to a certain predictable outcome. I think nobody would hold that there are narrowly determined purposes uh, in beings, but there may be overall purposes towards which they generally tend. For example, there are narrow and localized tendencies. For example, a lioness may go on the kill because she's hungry. And that is the purpose of her going on kill. But is killing prey the purpose of the lioness? I think not. I would say that it was an expression of the thisness of a lion. That is it itself an expression of part of something intrinsic in the wealth of the creative cosmos. It's a non-instrumental way of thinking. And it changes with scale. So you can at very small scale in a complex picture you can see little determinative chains but if you pan back and see the overall picture it's no longer narrowly deterministic but there's also something more active in the way in which animals even tiny organisms evolve um, take a, a single cell's response to threat cells actively promote mutations under certain circumstances and this process begins not from DNA, but merely uses DNA as a resource. Faced with the need for a new antigen, the mutation rate of the genome can be accelerated by as much as a million times. According to Dennis Noble, so far as we know, the mutations occur randomly, but the location in the genome is certainly not random. The functionality in this case lies precisely in the targeting of the relevant part of the genome. So organisms do not it repeatedly turns out, wait around for the chance to save themselves from extinction, but both greatly accelerate and appear to select new mutations so that they can recover something as complex as flagella within as little as a few days of them being removed from the organism, rather than over the many millennia that chance mutation would require. So as the philosopher Leszek Kolakowski put it, evolutionary process teams with dead ends, failures, half-baked projects, and circuitous routes. Nature proceeds somewhat gropingly, often trying several roads before it finds the right one, but it is driven constantly by an inherent tendency, and to un uncover this tendency would to be, be to understand the life of the universe.
In the face of this, of course, people have suggested that there must be an almost infinite number of universes uh, in order to explain how something very improbable repeatedly keeps happening. Because if there's virtually an infinite number of universes, um, there's a high probability approaching a certainty that everything will happen once. Um, it's, however, worth setting that probability in context. The chance of getting a universe which contains stars is estimated by the astrophysicist Lee Smolin as 10 to the power of 229. Now, to set that in context, the visible universe contains a mere 10 to the power of 80 subatomic particles compared with uh, 10 to the 229th. That is a tiny, tiny, almost unimaginably small fraction of, 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 of this very large um, number. And that's just to get to a universe that could contain stars. It doesn't get anywhere near life or consciousness if you hold that that uh, somehow arises out of inert matter, which, as you know, I don't. But the existence of life in the absence of tendencies in the cosmos towards overwhelmingly unlikely ends takes improbability to a whole new level. According to the paleobiologist Simon Conway Morris, the development of the eye, an improbably complex mechanism as it is, has happened independently 10 times over the course of evolution. The camera eye six times and the compound eye four times. All life, however simple, is dependent as a minimum on systems which can replicate DNA and translate it into functional proteins. These systems are vastly complex. Eugene Koonin, the senior investigator at the National Center for Biotechnology Information and a recognized expert in the field of evolutionary and computational biology, points to a problem here, which I can express briefly like this. In the simplest possible terms, the problem is this. For the evolution of life forms to get started, a certain minimum level of accurate transcription must be achieved, known as the Eigen threshold. Below this level of fidelity, there is too little stability. However, the achievement of this level of fidelity demands the evolution of a still more complex system to have been already achieved. This makes no sense according to our conventional schemata. And in fact, the probability, according to Kunin, that a coupled translational, sorry, translation replication emerges by chance in a single observable universe is less than 10 to the minus 1018. Uh, impossible to imagine, but effectively zero. So life tends to complexity, but why? Very few people have noticed, uh, says Leon Cass, that non-teleological explanations of change not only assume, but even depend upon the imminent teleological character of all living organisms, the desire or tendency of living things to stay alive and their endeavor to reproduce, both of which are among the minimal conditions of such a theory, are taken for granted and unexplained. Why, after all, make so much effort, embrace so many sacrifices? By far, the best strategy for persisting in being is to avoid being alive at all. Being a rock gives you a much better chance. How is it that life ever took off? As A.N. Whitehead observes, life itself is comparatively deficient in survival value. The art of persistence is to be dead. Only inorganic things persist for great lengths of time. 
The problem set by the doctrine of evolution is to explain how complex organisms with such deficient survival power ever evolved. I, I think that evolution did create them, but I think it can only rationally be explained if there are what Waddington called creative preferential pathways. Um, it may be possible to explain the origin of species by the doctrine of the struggle for existence among such organisms, but the struggle shows no, throws no light whatever upon the emergence of such a general type of complex organism which has faint survival power. And after all, once they arrived, why did organisms further evolve towards creatures with vastly lower survival prospects? A human life is on average 70 to 80 years, but there are trees that live to be a thousand years. And in fact, there are individual examples of some actinobacteria that live in deep waters of the oceans that are thought to be over a million years old. That one of the actual cells will be, one of the bacteria will be over a million years old, and it's still going strong. So all I can really um, say is, in conclusion, that beauty, complexity and responsiveness seem to be drives in the universe. And that, again, in the words of A.N. Whitehead, the philosopher and mathematician, the teleology of the universe is directed towards the production of beauty. And John Dewey, um, American uh, pragmatist philosopher, said the deepest problem of modern life is that we have failed to integrate our beliefs about the world with our beliefs about value and purpose which shows the pyramid of values um, as uh, max shaler the philosopher um, believed it to be he thought there were different levels of value and at the lowest level there were the values of use and pleasure then somewhat higher than this were the lebensvater the values of vitality such as generosity bravery um, and things like that. Then there were the Geistigewerte, which are values of the intellect and are things like beauty, goodness and truth. And at, at the summit was das Heilige, um, the, the appreciation of and the drive towards uh, the sacred. And I believe that in the right hemisphere, these values serve one another in the direction that Shaler intended, but that in the left hemisphere, they go in the reverse order as served up to us by people like Dawkins that the idea of holiness is just something that gives people satisfaction and holds communities together um, that beauty goodness and truth are just elements that cause um, mate selection to work better and uh, societies to hang together better and so on and so forth and all this is really just in the service of utility and pleasure so thank you very much, Dr. McGilchrist, for another fantastic talk. Um, yeah, we've got some questions here. So I'm just going to invite people into the room now to um, to ask them. So first up is going to be Ryder Streep. So Ryder, I'm just going to invite you in now. Um, my question is, in your work, is there any room for materialism or physicalism? And uh, if that's not the case, then in your ontological view, do you lean more so towards an idealistic viewpoint, say Bernardo Castro, for example, or a constitutive uh, panpsychism it's a very very good question there is certainly room for um for matter uh, indeed i refer to materialists as people who don't overvalue matter but undervalue matter in fact i i think matter is a very important part of the phenomenological universe and to cut a long story short, I believe it is a phase of consciousness, using the word phase, not in its temporal sense, but in 
the sense that physicists use it when describing the different phases of water. So it's the solid um, resistance-giving uh, phase of consciousness. But also I believe that there is not no value in um, a mechanistic vision of small details um, on which it can be quite a reliable guide. It's just that when we project outwards um, from our successes on tiny mechanisms to the view that the whole thing is just a material machine, that's when I think things go wrong. I'm not actually as pure an essentialist as, um, as I understand Bernardo to be. Um, but I, the expression of my views on this can most succinctly be put in a paper which is on the Essentia Foundation's website, and which I describe this neither being in here, as it were, the truth, the reality is what we make it, or that reality is just something out there that is untouched by our knowing it, and it's our job to find it, but it's in an encounter which has something of us in it, and certainly brings forth something of the other, never wholly, so it can be seen differently, but that, that view is nonetheless perfectly real, and it's not made less real because it has some of the viewer in it, uh, as well as some of the object being viewed. Or perceived. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, my question was about the issue of moral and in general value relativism. Could it be that relativism, uh, the fact that uh, different people uh, get different conclusions on what is good and what is valid, uh, could it be an outcome of uh, instrumental rationality in the sense that the values are reduced to interest? And in general, could this be the outcome of uh, utilitarianism? And according to you, how much is important to overcome utilitarianism, in particular in economics, because I am working on a project of turning experiences of values into a sort of currency, which substitute money, which is value neutral. So how is important the role of utilitarianism for relativism? And in economics, how is important to go beyond it? Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, the relativism of values uh, is worth just commenting on very briefly. Um, for example, there are certainly differences, usually rather um, small than enormous differences, um, in the aesthetic appreciations, the moral evaluations, and so on of different societies. But it would be a mistake to exaggerate these. There are um, very few societies in which it is thought good to rape, murder, and torture, for example, uh, just to take it to its most obvious. Um, and I'm very impressed by the commonality with which people find beauty and goodness in things that come from an entirely different culture. I mentioned that already. Um, so although there is a degree of relativity, relativity in that way, overall, they tend not to be so um, markedly relative. But I think your comment about the impact of utilitarianism is a very good one. Uh, I didn't have time to say as much as I would have liked about that, but in the book I do examine it. And the evidence seems to be that, uh, as I say, people's intuitional evaluations are able to take into account more and more subtle strands of a situation than the one that they evaluate once they make it explicit in a few serial sentences and arrive 
at, as it were, a percentage value of, of good associated with this particular outcome. Um, in, in some ways, this is a perfect example of what people who have lost a moral sense or it hasn't developed in them do in place of morality. In fact, I say utilitarianism is not a kind of morality. It's a substitute for morality in the same way that echolocation is a kind of sight for the blind. It's not really a kind of sight, although it may come to feel like that after years, but it's a way of getting by if you can't see. And I think that utilitarianism is a way of getting by if you really have lost your moral compass altogether. And that's why, I mean, I'm sorry to say this to professional philosophers because the ruling um, philosophy is utilitarianism, but it is associated with people with brain damage, low um, emotional and social intelligence, psychopathy, and generally undesirable features. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, just to say your, your work is extraordinary and um, it changed my worldview completely. Um, my question was around, um, I suppose from my reading of your work, there's a certain idea that um, these ideas can be sort of redemptive, that, that um, if, you know, in, in kind of re-realizing that we have, we have this other side of ourselves, this right brain side of ourselves, you know, we can avert a lot of the destructiveness that comes from the, you know, decontextualized, manipulative left brain. Do you have any sort of uh, methods or activities that somebody who's very analytical should maybe engage in more of to realize that? Or do you think the process is just intellectual to realize that there's a other side to yourself? Well, what I hope is to alert people to something that they already at some level have awareness of. They may not have found a way of articulating it, um, and they may feel cowed into submission to um, something that is extremely easy to voice. It's just a mechanism. Get used to it. You know, it's very easy to say that and appear superior. What, what is difficult is to articulate a different point of view. And it's not... Um, it, it does, that, the fact that it's difficult to articulate is not a feature of its being untrue in some way. Uh, it's, it's in fact, I would say, an aspect of its nature that it is difficult to articulate. So I think that um, we do need to shift the balance of our take on the world from the um, overall take of the left hemisphere, exactly that. And the subtitle of my book, The Matter With Things, is our brains, our delusions, and the unmaking of the world. And I believe we are literally unmaking the world. We're destroying nature. We're destroying ourselves. We're turning ourselves into machines. We're destroying our history, our traditions, and our culture. And we're destroying our sense of the spiritual. And there, are, there is enormous scientific research, which I cite in the book, showing that not just social cohesiveness, which I demonstrated at the end of The Master and His Emissary, but also closeness to the living world of nature and having and adopting a spiritual attitude to life and to the, the existence of things, have enormous benefits across the range. So they produce cognitive uh, improvements, uh, emotional improvements, psychological improvements in terms of health and well-being, and physical 
um, well-being. So, for example, greater than those of stopping smoking, losing weight, going to the gym, and so on, on rates of cardiovascular disease and so on. So it is a very, very remarkable um, uh, area, really. Anyway, thank you very much for that. I hope, hope I've answered your question a little bit anyway. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. Dr. McGillchrist, I want to say thanks again for uh, taking the time to share some of your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Um, for anybody that wants to follow up on this um, after the talk, the, the first 3,000 copies of your book, they're, they're, they're sold out. When, when will the next batch be available? Do you know? The next batch was available from um, Monday of this week, but it, it's only another 3,000 and it's selling very fast. We've sold nearly 1,000 already. So... Um, but I, I don't know, I just have to be much more on the case of getting more books out. But anyway, there it is. It's available on Amazon at the moment in America and uh, Britain. It's also available through my website uh, at a preferential um, rate. Um, so please buy and read. So yeah, Dr. McGillicus, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And everybody else will see you back at uh, 2.30. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.